1: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
2: Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. This is Crime Stories
1: with Nancy Grace. I'm executive producer Jackie Howard. We're discussing today the Dylan Redwine murder case going on right now. He disappeared after visiting his father. Listen.
2: Everyone with me is Dylan Redwine's mother, who has never given up in the search for the truth about where was her son, Dylan Redwine. Elaine, do you remember the moment that you learned Dylan was missing?
3: Yeah, it's... it's it, probably one of the most relived moments in my head of all time. What happened? Um, well, Dylan was, went on a plane ride to his father's house on Sunday and the next day at 4.30, around 4.30, Mark texted me and asked me if I'd seen Dylan and I said no. And he said, well, you know, he didn't know where he was, so I got in my car and we drove to Durango, which is about six hours away from where we're living. And I called
2: the sheriff and filed a missing persons report for Dylan because his dad had not done that. What what did you think when you got the text? Have you seen Dylan? Well,
3: obviously, I was very concerned because, you know, Dylan was not the kind of kid who would just wander off or, you know, leave without at least letting me or his brother Corey know. Um, We were very close to him and so when Mark had indicated that he had not heard from Dylan and I had not heard from Dylan, I I was very, very, obviously very upset and concerned about, you know, where where's my baby? Where is he? And he was 13 years old and he had his own phone. So, you know, he he knew um, he he knew enough to call us if he felt, you know, that he was in danger or anything.
2: What was Mark's story as to where Dylan went? How did the evening progress? Well, we finally got
3: to the um, Bayfield, which is about an hour, 45 minutes away from where Mark lives. And I immediately went into the sheriff's office.
1: Mark Redwine is accused of killing his 12-year-old son. His body was found seven months later up in the mountains. Joe Scott Morgan, professor of forensics at Jacksonville State University and author of Blood Beneath My Feet joins me now. Joe, let's start off talking about the discovery of the body. Before charges were laid against the father, the body of Dylan Redline was found along with some clothing. The body was not fully intact, it was dispersed. So let's talk about the location where the body
4: was found. It's important to understand that the area in which uh, Dylan's body uh, was found is in kind of an isolated area. And one of the things that we see in forensics, and particularly in body recovery of skeletal remains, is that uh, most of the time you're not going to find bodies that are what are referred to as dumped um, way off of a roadway. There's going to be a point of access, and that was certainly the case in uh, in Dylan's uh, body recovery. Uh, yeah, it's in kind of an isolated, rugged area. However, uh, there was actually an ATV path uh, that was immediately adjacent to a roadway, which provides uh, an individual access to go down the AT path, and there's a footpath where Dylan's body was found. Uh, and keep in mind, this was only the trunk of his body, so we're missing a skull at the time that that his body is actually found. It, it appears that his body was initially placed just off of this footpath, and, it lit- and, and it's a very sharp grade going down from the footpath. It literally rolled down the hill. And this is one of the things in forensic anthropology and forensic, uh, forensic uh, crime scene investigation is that you have to take into account the impact of the natural surroundings. Gravity is going to take over. And so, uh, through this process, gravity drew the body down to a central area where, where his body, uh, the the long bones, the ribs, these sorts of things were actually found deposited, and there were actually scraps of clothing. You know, it, it's very. I don't really know how to say it, other than the fact that it kind of it kind of pricks your heart a little bit when you see this child's clothing. There were a pair of athletic shoes, his socks, uh, you know, a jersey, uh, kind of a sports shirt that he 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 had on. You know, a lot of us can think about our own kids and how we might dress them, particularly a thirteen-year-old boy uh, at this stage in their life, and and here he is out here in this desolate area, out in the wilderness. Uh, found uh, essentially just laying in a heap or what remained of him at least in a heap at the base of this uh, of this hill. The
1: autopsy revealed that Dylan Redwine suffered a skull fracture above his left eye. There was a cut with a sharp tool. There were two marks found on Dylan's skull that they say were actually caused by a sharp tool. Um, and this is from the forensic specialist forensic anthropologist Diane France. So, walk me through it, Joe. To have that kind of a skull fracture, what is it likely that this child went through? Well,
4: you know, one of the things that they have, that they did discover, uh, what they did discover relative to the skull is that it appears that this is a skull fracture. And let me tell you why this is so difficult, uh, and and not just a skull fracture, but a depressed skull fracture, blunt force trauma, if you will. One of the reasons this is so difficult is that so much time has passed since the fatal event occurred. You don't have, you no longer have soft tissue, and what does soft tissue tell us in the forensic world? Well, it, it goes to bruising, hemorrhage. You know, like a a point of impact if you're struck with a even a fist or a foot or a club or a rock, that doesn't exist anymore. So the only thing you have left is this kind of desiccated which is a fancy word for tried uh, dried old bone that's left behind but you can see where there's kind of fracturing almost like an egg where it's uh, where it's fractured downward though where it looks like something impacted this area now one of the really curious things about this case and a lot of people have kind of drawn some drawn their own conclusions is that, Dr. France, who is one of the foremost forensic anthropologists in America, I mean, she is sharp as attack, tack. Uh, one of the conclusions that they reached uh, was that there were, in fact, what appeared to be sharp force injuries. Now, when we think about sharp force injuries, we think about stabbings and we think about cuttings. Well, these, this is more in line with a cutting, okay, uh, which means that you have to have what's referred to as a milled weapon, which means that it's a sharp instrument that has an edge on it that has been forged, okay? It's not like it's something like a, a rock that's kind of non-uniform. This is uniform. When you see these marks, she actually described it, and if folks at home will just think about uh, the shape of a V. If you could look down the long axis of a V, it cuts a groove like that. If you can look at it on the side, uh, uh, like a, uh, with a microscope, you can see it, it looks almost like a perfect V. Well, that comes from this idea of a, uh, a knife kind of gliding along the edge. And there's multiple of these linear marks that were created by a knife. What's Striking about this, and one of the the things that the forensic anthropologist has to work out, is that the fact that this is in an area where you've got a lot of wildlife. I mean, you're talking about mountain lions, uh, you're talking about foxes, uh, you're talking about uh, some carnivores. So how how do they delineate between the trauma that may have been inflicted upon Dylan either just prior to death, which we call anti-mortem, perimortem, which means kind of in the throes of death right in the middle of it, and and post-mortem trauma, as opposed to, say, an animal coming along, and I'm going to be very graphic here, and I'm sorry, but uh, an animal feasting on the remains. Well, when an animal actually begins to gnaw on a bone, it leaves more of a curved feature in the bone. That's not what you had here. This is somebody actually wielding a knife, or wielding something with a sharp edge that's literally dragging it across the surface of the bone that's making these marks. Now, I think the big question here is, well, why would somebody do that? Why would you have knife-edge marks on this child's bone where there's already been a depressed skull fracture or blunt force trauma? Well, I think some people, some people have at least implied That there might have been an effort at dismemberment.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
4: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA.
2: Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. Joe, you bring up a really good point. Mark
1: Redwine's attorney has said that Dylan left home and that he was fatally attacked by a wild animal. But the bones, obviously, the body had obviously been scavenged by wild animals. And Dr. France said there were clear tooth marks and punctures and grooves on all of the bones that were examined. But the fracture above Dylan's left eye was roughly 1.6 inches long, and that could not have been caused by animal activity, but by blunt force trauma.
4: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and and this is why, because when when an animal when an animal is actually uh, actually feasting, as it's referred to. If you'll ever notice a dog with a bone out in a yard, one of the things they'll do is they'll capture they'll capture the bone uh, with their front paws. Okay, just imagine this in your mind. They're capturing the bone with their front paws, and what do they do? Uh, what do they do uh, with their mouth? Well, they turn their head to the side and just watch this. Sometimes, if you ever see a dog and they begin to chew. On the side, they're not tearing. Remember our canine teeth, which are the forward and the incisor teeth, and we have them too, just like an animal. Those are the sharp edge, puncturing type. No, this this occurs. They're they're gnawing on the side with uh, with their uh, bicuspids and and their 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 teeth with cusp that lead back to the molars, and this creates these kind of uh, um, uh, trench like uh, markings on the bone, which are in fact which are in fact kind of grooves that are u-shaped they're not actually puncturing the bone they're trying to kind of wear the bone down their goal is to get to the protein which is kind of fascinating when you think about an animal they're trying to get to that protein that's contained within that marrow and they want the calcium too they're, they're instinctively going after that No, no 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 what we have here with dylan And that that injury that this child's skull has sustained, or as we refer to it, an insult, you'll hear forensic pathologists say that, that is a direct direct driven uh, uh, point of impact that is occurring as a result of something that could concentrate, think about this, that could concentrate all that energy in one small area and being struck. Straight down onto the skull. I don't know. Think about the number of items that could do that. Uh, the uh, the flat end of a hammer, for instance. Uh, maybe some type of of sharp, heavy metal pole that could be driven down into somebody's skull and could create that little create that little focal area. So you got a tremendous amount of energy that's being directed at that one single area that I cannot even begin to describe to you how impactful that would have been at the moment of time that there's a high likelihood that that could have led to his death um, or maybe it was a finishing blow. Maybe someone had attempted to suffocate or choke. Uh, For all we know, he could have been shot because this is the problem. All these years afterwards, like I said before, we don't have any soft tissue and there's not enough bone or skeletal remain to tell us actually what happened. So that's one of the big conundrums that the investigators have been faced with and the forensic scientists uh, relative to uh, Dylan's death.
1: Now one thing that the uh, defense did point out while they were uh, questioning the forensic anthropologist is the possibility of say the blunt force trauma being caused after death in that there were, was cattle in the area and could you know a hoof have come in contact with the skull. So how would the pathologist uh, go about finding out, or can they figure out which way it happened?
4: Yeah, this is one of the fascinating uh, things about this. You know, let's keep in mind, Dylan's skull, if I remember correctly, was found over a mile away uh, from his actual, the rest of his remains. Remember, the rest of the remains, the trunk of his body was actually discovered first, and then the skull uh, and it's kind of a partial skull was found uh, sometime later, and over over a mile and a half away. Um, and the area where his skull was found is actually kind of in a gentle rolling area. It's not as sharp uh, sharp of a, a decline as where his body was initially deposited. And yeah, there were cattle around, and yeah, it could be postulated uh, that. Uh, that uh, a cow uh, may have stepped on the skull. Uh, but I, I don't know. Again, that's just something that they're throwing out there uh, to, you know, to put other possibilities in the wind to get before the jury. I don't know how one would go about actually proving that because here's the thing. If you've got a crushing type of injury, if you've got a crushing type of injury, how are you going to delineate that uh, from say, a hammer strike, a baseball bat strike, or uh, being run over by a car and and uh, or being stepped on by a hooved animal, whether it be uh you know an elk or a or a cow and that brings us back to our original problem, doesn't it? The bones have been deposited out there for so long we don't have anything to kind of uh, intellectually hang our hat on to say, okay, well, this is, this is what brought about this trauma. There's no overlying bruising. You can't appreciate hemorrhage because sometimes with those we can pick up on a pattern. It's much, much more difficult to pick up on patterns on bone uh, like this. Uh, say if you've got, for instance, you've got overlying tissue of somebody that's been struck by a hammer. I, I've worked many cases where I, you actually can see the indentation or the bruise mark that's left by a hammer, and it's going to look literally like a quarter laying on its side. And when you take the skin away, all you're going to have is fractured bone beneath it. So all of a sudden, uh, you, you've lost your point of reference. That's what makes this so very, very difficult.
1: So when it came down to discovering what happened to Dylan Redwine, as the police were investigating they brought in cadaver dogs and sent dogs into the red wine home yes uh blood was found there and also in the father's truck so how was that addressed
4: well you know dogs are fascinating aren't they uh, cadaver dogs in particular uh, for me as a as an old death investigator and you know when i think about them uh, you know how I often describe the way these dogs work as kind of how we see. Uh, when we're young, we're taught about uh, that we see through a, a spectrum of light, all kinds of degrees of light, you know, when we look at it. But when you look at a, uh, when, you, when you think about what a dog does, they kind of work on a spectrum, too. It's an olfactory spectrum. That, that's a, the spectrum of smell. And we are, <laughs> we as humans are greatly diminished. Uh, in, in the presence of a canine and their abilities they can smell anything and they can go back over long periods of time these dogs are actually trained in scenting of of human remain of blood they're trained with these things and so it picks up on that spectrum that they're trained to smell on you know I don't think in our wildest fantasies could any human being uh, uh, even uh, begin to to do what a dog does and in this case When they went uh, to Redwine's home, they scented on the blood within the residence. Okay, which is actually uh, in one real kind of graphic image that I've seen, uh, because they use an alternative lighting surface uh, source as well as uh, a luminescing um, agent. Uh, You could see blood that was on the leading edge of, of like a lounge chair. You could see it. On the floor where it was covered with a carpet, and then of course they go out to the truck and and they find that so what what can we what can we kind of determine as a result of this? well, we can return we can determine that there was in fact what's referred to as a bloodletting event in the specific area within the house, and maybe an attempt was made half heartedly as it was to clean the blood up and you know the problem with perpetrators when they go to clean up blood is that they don't do a very thorough job many of times. So that's how we catch them. Okay. So when they went to attempt to clean this blood up, they missed spots or they didn't scrub as hard as they should have. Now you have blood that goes from here and then you find it in the truck. Well, what's the truck used for? Well, the truck is used for transportation, so you know logic would dictate that there is a high probability that that this event that took place within the structure within the dwelling of Redwine of Mark Redwine, um, that body that that blood issued forth from uh, was then taken to the truck, and the truck uh, was was used as a conveyance to remove the body from that location, and then of course. Uh, Dylan's body was subsequently dumped.
1: Joe, so you talked a little bit uh, about this earlier. Dylan Redwine went missing in June of 2012. Um, his trunk was found in June of 2013, but his skull was not found until November of 2015. So what kind of problems does that cause for investigators? Cause, because obviously the skull was um, exposed longer into the element so what kind of problems does that cause
4: i gotta say from the beginning it is and i'm not saying this to diminish the efforts of the investigators it's dumb luck that they found this skull i mean it is just uh, amazing uh when you consider how much time went past and if folks at home will just think about just walking through the woods you're you're walking through the woods on a regular maybe go on a hike in the mountains or around your home how many times do you actually look down on the ground and you're able to identify something laying on the ground uh, that looks like a bone? well, it doesn't happen a lot. Can you imagine months and months and years and years since the initial finding of this uh, body deposition? Uh, you have the skull that is found oh a great distance away from the actual uh, uh, totality of the, you know, the, the rest of the body, the fact that they found it. So one of the things that you begin to wonder about and that the police begin to wonder about is, well, uh, was this an event of uh, involving scavengers? Well, what do we think about scavengers? If it was a possum, which possums do scavenge bones, if it was a raccoon, which they scavenge bones, most of the time they're going to take a bone and generally it'll be a small bone, and they'll take it to their burrow, and it really won't be too far away. Their bar, their burrow will be easily accessible. Just think about those little legs, you know, hauling off something heavy. Now, you get into larger animals, and you begin to think about, say, I don't know, uh, a dog, for instance. Uh, I've I've had any number of cases over the course of my career where dogs have actually brought skulls up into people's yards and you can imagine the homeowners are terrified. They see the dog and the dog will literally be in the backyard gnawing on a human skull. How striking that is. Well, you have to think where did the dog find the skull? And they see it as a prize. Well, then you begin to think about things like mountain lions. Uh, you think about foxes, uh, other larger animals that could go over a mile with a human remain. So You you begin to think, well, was it a scavenger that did this or was it something even more sinister than that? Because it can get more sinister than that, because some people have actually put forth this idea uh, that, you know, I hate to say this, that that there may have been an attempt to dismember. Dylan. and I, I truly hope that's not the case but let's just say that it was how would you how would that skull get so far removed from the body it would have to be a really big scavenger in order to do that or it would have to have somebody that would have to have actual possession and control over the skull and had transported it there to that final resting place and deposited it there
1: You can follow this case and more of Joe Scott Morgan's comments at CrimeOnline.com. This has been Crime Stories with Nancy Gray. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.
2: Go to lisa.com forward slash nancy to learn more. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash nancy. Pause for a big thank you to our partner making today's program possible. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. Amazing.